Hey everybody, cover your ears. This is James from Yola Tango, and you're listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Why don't you come? Why don't you come? Why don't you come? Let me take you. That was Nathaniel Mayer with The Village of Love, single on Fortune Records from the early 1960s. Good evening, this is Frank Uli, and welcome to Radio Ramalama Fa Fa Fa. We're talking to our special guest tonight, Michael Hurt, the co-author with Billy Miller of Mind Over Matter, The Myths and Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records, out in 2020 on Kix Books from New York. And Michael is going to give us the lowdown on how the book evolved and the Fortune Records story, which is a interesting and kind of sad tale as the label started out in the late 40s went on to have some big hits in the 50s and early 60s and then kind of petered out as the owners just kind of kept it going in a strange kind of ghostly fashion for a few years afterwards but never really uh, connecting up with the world of like cds and things so the music is very hard to hear nowadays and out of print we'll talk about all that in the first hour and the second hour we'll be giving you a heavy dose of the many fortune classics, just a tiny portion thereof, the 400 or so records they put out. Anyway, welcome Michael Hurt. Glad to be here, Frank. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give us some background on how you got started in writing and how you hooked up with Norton Records and Billy Miller and publisher Miriam Lina. It's funny, the story kind of goes back to Billy and Miriam of Norton Records and Kix Books um, and, of course, Kix Magazine originally. I remember... The first time I ever saw Kicks magazine was at Wax Tracks Records in Chicago, and I was about 19 years old. And the Rivieras were on the cover, and they were from my hometown, South Bend, Indiana, and so they were cool. heroes to me. And uh, it just kind of screamed at me from the magazine rack, you know, the Rivieras are on. What is this magazine? And, and you know, I opened Kicks and just thought, like, oh, my life is laid out. You know, like, <laughs> people are like me. You know, they they're into all this weird stuff. Of course, a lot of it at the time I didn't know about. Back then, you know before the internet you really it was such an underground network that you'd get into you know find out about music you know and and cool records on sort of underground records and, and also other things you know movies books you know restaurants would occasionally be talked about you know <laughs> diners yeah. but um so i think as far as you know i always wanted to i always had like enjoyed writing and let me rephrase that. I always enjoyed writing and I always pictured my, myself becoming a writer and I always wanted to do something with music history. But as a teenager thinking about this stuff, I didn't really know how I would do it. You know, I remember looking at like a Midnighters LP on Charlie that had this really cool design, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
what you get when the getting gets good, you know, and, and turning it over and reading those, reading the liner notes and thinking, you know, that, that moment always kind of stands out to me of, wow, I wonder how I could be like, get into this position where, you know, you get to write about this stuff and you even get to design an album cover that looks like this, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so to a certain extent, I think that when I first, uh, when I first found kicks, it, the stars aligned, it all kind of came together. Oh, this is how I could do this. You know, I could have a fanzine. I could uh, go out and try to talk to my heroes and get their stories and, and, you know, put it in my own words and there's no real rules, you know? I mean, the way they wrote was with such energy and such spontaneity that, you know, it was basically like listening to the rock and roll records that they were writing about. Totally. Um, so when I started to become a quote unquote legit writer, I actually think that probably, I remember that I think two of the first things I ever reviewed were, uh, and it was for a local monthly music magazine in New Orleans, where the Rudy Ray Moore um, album that they put out, Holy Gully Fever, of all his rhythm and blues sides, mm -hmm. and um, Long John Hunter, the, oh, cool. Texas, the Texas guitar, guitar yeah, yeah. giant, who was a big influence on the Bobby Fuller Four. And those, mm -hmm. two, those two records, I mean, I, I had long been a, you know, I had put out my own fanzine, uh, you know, shortly after I first discovered Kicks, and you know, and so that would have been like you know, 1989 or something like that that I put that out. The Creeper, mm -hmm. one issue, of course, never, never got the second one done. But you know, so I'd been writing, but not you know, I was just doing it for myself. You know, doing these mm -hmm. fanzines and writing for other people's fanzines whenever I could. And then when I find when I first got published uh, in a quote unquote legit magazine it was offbeat and then from there i just started you know trying to figure out ways to con the editors into letting me write about older stuff because you know ace records and just sort of review stuff and then i began to interview people uh in new orleans because there were so many um unsung heroes of of you know rock and roll and rhythm and blues and hillbilly music and cajun all of it down there mm -hmm. uh just a lot of my heroes um I started, I was buying more records and then I started, the more records you buy, the more you want to know the stories behind them. Right. So I just started talking to people and uh, wrote, a, wrote, I've done a lot of liner note projects. Mm -hmm. I did a, probably one of the most memorable um, projects I ever did was uh, I did a three volume Charlie Feathers uh, series uh, for Norton. Uh, which was really, really great with Billy and Miriam. That was, wow. that was the, um, one of the most notable things I did with them. I've done other stuff. I did the Flamethrowers, which is a double 45 set, gatefold set of uh, these this great, you know, instrumental, just killer instrumental rock and roll band from Royal Oak here. Right, Clicks Records. Clicks Records, exactly. Yeah, yeah, cool. Clicks Records recording artists, the Flamethrowers. Uh, <laughs> and that was a fantastic... Uh, really a highlight um and also actually the first it's funny i i didn't realize this until recently but the first because i've been friends with billy and miriam for so long um and they were really the kind of people that will just pull you in as as a you know a fan or, or a minion or whatever it is a follower it's like then all of a sudden you're you're playing a leading role in the movie you know it's like <laughs> um at some point they just you know i remember it was right after the hurricane 
uh, in New Orleans 2005, and I was up here in Detroit. Couldn't go back um, mm -hmm. because the city was closed. Mm -hmm. um, my house was flooded. I mean, it was just <laughs> a real twilight period of, of strangeness. Um, and uh, Billy calls me up and says, hey, man, you want to do the liner notes for this um, this new album we're going to put out? It's uh, going to be called Get in the Groove. And it was it was a holiday, Norton Holiday Spectacular um, that they had put on. Oh, I, I remember uh, that album, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it started out as a, as, as a celebration of Billy's 50th birthday, but, but it, it grew into this just incredible bill, you know, starring well, several Fortune Records artists, you know, Andrea Williams and Nathaniel Mayer. I remember Billy called me and said, well, I think you might have been the only one actually paying attention. And I, <laughs> and I think he, I think he, I, I don't remember whether he said this, but I, I think I knew, he knew that I needed the money <laughs> or something because here I was like marooned in Detroit, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no job, no house, no anything, you know, possibly no possessions, which it ended up being the case. I first met you in 2002 at this show in Detroit uh, suburbs um, where they got a whole bunch of vintage acts together to play for the first time in, in decades live. And most of them, you know, came on and did like two or three songs and were kind of singing the backing tracks. Nathaniel Mayer, the legend of Fortune Records, who we heard at the beginning of the show, was live. And you were saying that you had come up to the show and pulled up and boom, you saw Nathaniel out in the parking lot and you were like interviewing him right away. And... It went from there, and again, we were all knocked out by the show, and you and Billy, and Billy and Miriam had flown in from New York, and so you and Billy started talking about uh, Fortune Records at that time. You know, in a certain way, that's a touchstone, even though we hadn't, you know, we weren't planning on doing the book yet at that mm -hmm. point. It was like, that was 2002. Well, when did we really start, start it? You know, 2010 was when we really really got when the rubber really met the road. I mean, you know, we had a year of talking about it before that. Billy's saying, we've got to do this. And, and, and just sort of, you know, making the decision that we were going to do it, which of course I said, absolutely, let's do it, you know, but we had to, you know, figure out the nuts and bolts of it. At first we were going to ask some, we wanted to ask other people to contribute because so many other people, uh, you know, like Craig Mackey and Keith Cady and SR Boland and, uh, you know, um, Rich Tupica, you know, all, all of whom contributed mightily to the book. Right. We were, we were kind of thinking, well, maybe, you know, we'll ask each of them to write a few chapters, but it just sort of became obvious that we, that I don't know, nobody seemed to quite take the bait and, you know, within, you know, within about a year we were, we knew it was going to be us. Yeah. That was it. We were going to do this book. And it almost right after that, it almost immediately became apparent that it was going to be not just a book about fortune records, but it was going to be the history of underground Detroit, multiple genres, post-World War II, <laughs> maybe even a little bit of pre-war <laughs> yeah. up to it, but uh, being told through the prism of fortune records. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that helped us to make that decision sort of unwittingly was mm -hmm. in August of 2010, we interviewed Eddie Kirkland um together in new york and um his you know we dedicated two chapters in the book to the guy i mean mm -hmm. he was his story was just this epic american i mean just incredible uh i don't even know what to call it i mean not even a not even a story it's more than a story man he yeah, really it's amazing 
and 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 he had all you know he only recorded two records for fortune but he had all this he'd done records for all these other labels that we loved like lupine and king and, and vault um, yeah yeah and he had all this history with john lee hooker um so the, his story on record we felt hadn't been told the way it needed to be told and then the guy's story of his life which of course intertwined with it you know and and he had all this background about hastings street and, and oakland avenue and detroit you know black detroit back in the day you know just the really the essence of of you know detroit and it's like you know detroit's african-american epicenter and it's at its zenith and you know it was like we it was almost like we never had to talk about it but it's like oh yeah we got to talk about we really got to go into detail about hastings street paradise valley the i-75 freeway plowing it under the the sociological um ramifications of all of that you know i mean we need to talk about this in the book this is a part of the story you know so it really became we cast a really wide net you know almost immediately and that really helped us to there are so many other things you you mentioned earlier that you know billy and miriam of course have always collected you know records from all over the place and been fascinated by all these different music scenes and 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 i have as well and and uh it's it's the, the the regionalism, you know, is such a big part of these records and such a big part of this music. Um, with the Fortune story and with the Detroit story, there's so many things connected. There's so many other labels that intersect with Fortune Records, like for instance, Clicks and Happy Hearts, you know, JBB, um, and and then there's there, there's 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 major labels like Four Star and RCA that are you know, somewhat a part of the story, Epic, which Bacon Fat was leased to by Andre Williams in 56, you know, United Artists, you know, which uh, put out Village of Love, you know, um, by Nathaniel Mayer. So there's all these other stories, some of them told, some of them untold. Well, if they were untold, we felt the responsibility to tell them, if we could, within the pages of this book. So it became, you know, really more of, of, of a you know, who crossed the threshold of Fortune Records as opposed to we're going to do a straight history of a label. And I think that that, you know, one of the things that I'm so proud of about this book is that I think that it's very user-friendly, to use a ridiculous term, um, in the sense that I think anybody could pick this book up not knowing anything about any of this music and not having heard any of it and, and be totally entertained just reading about it. Now, hopefully, if they haven't heard the music, they're going to want to go out and listen to all of it and go find it. But let's 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 take a brief pause and listen to one of the tunes, and we'll get back. We're, we're going to hear from Eddie Kirk himself with the grunt. Do you want to do the grunt challenge? Yeah! Do you want to do the grunt challenge? Yeah! Let's get with it.
right, that was Eddie Kirk with The Grunt on Fortune Records. Tonight our guest is Michael Hurt, the co-author with Billy Miller of Mind Over Matter, The Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records. And we were talking about how the book was expanded to include the whole spectrum of Detroit's musical scene. And one of the aspects of the book that I think is so amazing is the uh, illustrations, the documentation of not only Fortune, but the other record labels and just venues and artists that no one's even ever heard of. Yeah, no, I, that was always something that was really important to us from the very, very beginning and uh, was to tell the story with as many images and as much ephemera as we could get our hands on. So that could that could just be a matchbook cover, a, a receipt, a record label, photos, um, a church key. In one I love day. that church key. I love that church key. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, just everything. So we wanted it to be a fully immersive experience and we wanted all that to be integrated with the text. And our designer, Elizabeth Van Italy, was just an absolute unsung hero of this project. She brought this thing together in a way that I don't think anybody else could have. Um, so I definitely want to give her a shout out. Designers never seem to get mentioned in the uh, as much as they ought to with things like this, but, but, you know, and she was very much of the same mind as Miriam and me when we sat down with her, she, I gave her a 10 minute summation of what we wanted. And she said, well, just send me a chapter and some images and, and I'll see what I can come up with in the next five days. And then she sent us these, <laughs> basically what you see here, you know, wow. that was the template. The, the template she sent us was, was totally, totally perfect. It was the Al Allen chapter. Uh, and it was just like just the fonts and the and everything. It was just beautiful. So, uh, and she was very you know open to our suggestions and ideas and 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 everything else as well. So um, it was amazing to have the right person help us realize that. And mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it had to be again. Uh, that that something I feel that that Billy Miriam and I were always completely of one mind on. This is how it has to be. And you know um when we were kind of figuring it out like looking at books looking at other books thinking about how we wanted it to appear and stuff like that at some point i remember uh us saying to miriam as our publisher we need to do this in full color can can we do it in full color and and she was just like, yes, I'm going to make sure we do this in full color, like, no matter what it costs. I mean, basically, she said, as far as you guys want to go with this, is well, that's, that, that is how far we're going to go with it. And there's not going to be any, any limitations. And that was exactly the way it, the way it came down in the end. Um, so that is such a huge thing to have someone, to have a publisher uh, backing you with your dream and exactly not only just saying, I hear what you want to do, but saying, yeah, this is how I would do it too. Like in other words, right. she believed in it the same, she had the same vision as us. Um, so that was huge again. And, uh, and, and it just, I couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. Um, it's exact, you know, oftentimes these things are not what you picture in your wildest dreams. Um, and you might be a little disappointed. Well, this was exactly what I pictured if, if not better. And oh, it's, totally uh, awesome. it's a really good feeling um, to be to be able to say that. I mean, it's um, there was so much, uh, again, going back to all the connected stories that we wanted to talk that we wanted to tell that we were able to tell in the book. Mm -hmm. um, 
that was a big part of 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 the images you know um because so many of these people were not not people who who most people have heard of so many right. artists and and even the record the other record labels besides fortune you know i remember like uh one of the first conversations i had with you when i was coming up here visiting during oh, that, this yeah. yeah was was i said man you know you know anything about happy hearts records you know this, <laughs> this little hillbilly label from wayne michigan that mm -hmm. turns out was of course connected with fortune because a bunch of fortune artists went and recorded out there as well and they were friends with them you know the jack and devorah brown were friends with the gentleman that owned it you know mm -hmm. happy hearts and i remember um, I didn't know anything about it. It was just a fascinating label. And I lived in New Orleans at the time. So it was even more exotic because it was so, I was never going to find this stuff anywhere except when I came up here to visit you guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember saying, do you know anything about this label? And he said, oh, well, Keith Jason on WSDS. He just told the whole story last, uh, last night. You know, and Keith is, of course, actually Keith Cady, uh, who contributed a lot of photos to the book. And oh, wow amazing and very helpful and he's a another soldier of history another young just a young guy who mm -hmm. uh who who had a radio show an am radio show on this little station in the huron valley in ypsilanti um uh that was it was a country station and he played classic country old country and also played upright bass and you know at the age of 20 or whatever he had you know he was collecting all these records and trying to give people stories and uh, because he had that radio show, a lot of these guys that were still alive were listening to it and calling in. Wow. And so a lot of the interviews that um, no one else had thought to do, um, and we hadn't, Billy and I hadn't done, because the guys were all dead wow. by the time we decided to do the book, uh, a lot of the country and hillbilly guys, I mean, it was really hard to find someone that Keith or his friend Craig Mackey had not interviewed, um, wow. and thank and, and 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 they 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 had their own book, Detroit Country Music, that they put out a few years back. But exactly. a lot of the stuff um, they had gone so deep, and they didn't use a lot of it, and they just were super generous and said, "You guys can." They they let us use, you know, multiple interviews, wow. um, and you know. They also hooked me up with some people when I was, again, when I still lived back in New Orleans before, before we were even planning to do this book. But when we were exchanging information all the time, I interviewed Ford Nix and Joyce Songer and, wow. you know, a couple of other, you know, people that they hooked me up with. That's one thing about the, the book. And I want to get a little bit more into the, the label itself because again, probably not that many of the listeners have, have heard a fortune record or know much about fortune story but the label started in the just after world war ii and um jack and devora brown with this couple who had a kind of a dream of being like she was a songwriter so she had a dream of being a writer of kind of pop you know ballads and such that would be played on the radio sung by like a big band singer right right and right. And, and somehow they, they he was smitten with her and he kind of bankrolled a recording session but the record didn't really do anything of written of songs she'd written and then they kind of realized that they'd have to do it themselves and they started this label but the label their their finances were such that they couldn't record a 16-piece big band they had to record you know a five-piece country band with 
you know, right. steel guitar or whatever. And yeah. So, but they started in the mid '40s. So, one of the things I thought, I, I, I mean, I'll just say my my background with Fortune Records was I would go to record shows, 20, 30 years ago, and there'd be these old like doo-wop collectors. Like, yeah, doo-wop, you know, good doo-wops. And I thought, yeah, Fortune Records. It's just kind of like I'm not that into doo-wop. You know, no one's strong. They're all cool, but I'm not really going to shell out the money for a bunch of 45s of of group harmony kind of stuff. Right. Once, once I, I'm out in the wild and I see like a 78 by Skeets McDonald, the tattooed lady or whatever, and I start picking these up and I'm realizing, you know, that, that the genres that they covered were so broad. And, they, and again, they started in the late 40s before doo-wop was even a thing. And they, they I'm, I'm just going to ask you this because they started recording all these country records. They put out a whole bunch of really amazing, high quality, late 40s country that I almost wonder, were they the most prolific studio recording Detroit country music at that time? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. By, by a long shot. Yeah. You know, it was almost like they had it all to themselves. I mean, you know, we deal with a couple other labels in here uh, during that era, Citation being mm-hmm. one of them, yep. which put out less than 10 records, I think. Yeah, uh, exactly. If I'm remembering correctly, uh, if not that, maybe 11. <laughs> yeah, it was you close know? to that. And that was like practically, it, you know, really early on was just about as big as it got. I mean, Fortune was huge. I mean, they, you know, it was incredible. Their their output for just that country mm-hmm. stuff alone was amazing. I mean, once they really started to do, once they once they really. Um, you know, once they really started to do it, it was, you know, put out in the 100 series and it was just incredible how many, how many records they put out in such a short period of time. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the business model because it seems like at first they were, I mean, they existed until ooh, the 70s. They put out their last record in 1972. Well, actually... Technically 86, but <laughs> well, that's true. They had those reissue albums. Well, they put out their last, their last record was Andre Williams, Bacon they, at 86. Bacon Fat 86. I have that 45 too. <laughs> but also they, 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 they did, they did some other weird dabbling, like the love dog label with Nathaniel uh, Mayer raised the curtain high. That was a fortune subsidiary, but yeah, okay. basically you're right. 72 is pretty much the, the last, I mean, they, they, they were no longer a going thing. That. so but 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 it just seems like it, i mean obviously they had a huge burst of activity with the country and they switched into like the r&b um in doo-wop in the 50s until the early 60s they they i mean you said this and you've talked about this with other other interviewers they never really took off into the like the garage rock in the mid 60s or even so much soul like detroit had you know golden world and rick tick yeah. and all these soul labels but Fortune just had a very small scattering of stuff that fit those genres. Can you, what was, what was going on? Was it because they, it was, it it must've been always kind of close to the bone, I guess is what I'm getting at. I think it was, but I think another thing that Billy and I, from the very first conversation, like beyond, Oh, these records are killer. uh, You know, we had was what were they doing? Mm -hmm. What? Were, what, like what was their raison d'etre, if you will, or, or, mm-hmm. or maybe maybe actually I think we know what that I think they just enjoyed it. 
Uh, but, but really like, what was their business model? Did they have a business model? And I think the answer is sort of no. I mean, they didn't even have a plan. I mean, I think that that, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that question is still the big lingering, one of the big lingering questions that we never really were able to answer, but it sure was fun trying to, um, you know, trying to, trying to come to the answer, uh, throughout, you know, the journey of, of, of writing and researching this book. I think one of the, but we did come up with a couple of conclusions. Um, and I think that that's the best you can do sometimes with this stuff. Um, to answer your first or to address your first comment about Mm -hmm. the, the burst of country activity followed by the doo-wop. Well, they were also putting out jazz and also like, you know, hard hitting rhythm and blues stuff, you know, jump R and B, which, you know, jazz and jump R and B at that time kind of co-mingled with one another, but, you know, Donald Byrd's first appearance on wax is on a fortune record, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is pretty interesting. Kenny Burrell's first records were on fortune. Um, so they were doing that in the late 40s, uh, along with the country and along with some um, early vocal group dabbling, you know, sort of pre do op stuff, um, as well as polka, too. Um, they, did, they did some of that and gospel. Mm-hmm. But they really, I think that the doo-wop uh, really became a concentrated effort mm-hmm. once Nolan Strong came along and Devorah just fell in love with Nolan Strong and the Diablos, his group. And they put out, you know, Adios, My Desert Love, and followed up by The Wind, both in 1954. And The Wind was just huge. Adios was big. The Wind was massive. Right. Uh, and it, obviously there's never been a record before or since it sounded like that. And so I think that that really pushed them in the direction of the groups, the doo-wop groups. And then that did as you said, become what Fortune later became known for in collector circles because their doo-wop stuff was just so fascinating and so different than so much other vocal group material and record, so many records from that time. You guys covered everything so thoroughly in this book. I mean, there's just things that I, you know, am amazed that you could find information on but but even even then there's a few that i have that i'm like oh you guys didn't even mention it or you know you you referred to it in passing right some of the things you know that almost became our 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 rule of thumb was every record has to be mentioned at least mentioned now hopefully we can do more than just mention it and do a brief description but you know uh and i think i think there might have been a couple that we missed i i hope not but but um but we, we got most of them but well, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw in one of the more notorious ones, just for a quick uh, a giggle here. But uh, one of the artists they started out in the '50s with was um, Johnny Bucket, right? And they had him doing some of those risque numbers, like Riddle Grease and Daddy, which Riddle Grease and Daddy, which he reported, which he recorded twice, uh, once in 1952 on their subsidiary Renown, right? Um, and then he re-recorded it in the late 50s for that EP, um, a four song party EP they did and also the Tattooed Lady album, uh, it was on there. And I mean, my God, it's like this total, it's like one of the best rockabilly records ever. I mean, it's just so, it just sounds like it's just, I don't even know, basement, just, God, they're just 
down there just wailing. <laughs> it's well, such a fantastic record, man. Yeah, let's take a listen to Johnny Bucket and Griddle Grease and Daddy. Mind Over Matters, the book out from Kicks Books. But I'm a griddle grease and daddy dog on your soul. I'm a griddle grease and daddy. I want a greasy griddle if it takes me all night long. We'll grease it upstairs, downstairs in the hall, down in the cellar. That's the best place of all. Cause I'm a griddle grease and daddy. I want a greasy griddle until I break up dawn. That was Johnny Bucket with Griddle Grease and Daddy. I love that uh, risque style of some of the Fortune records that came out in the, especially in the kind of hillbilly style. There were a number of what I guess are called party records. What can you tell us about those? Well, yeah, that's a really that was a really interesting aspect of the story that that we were always completely fascinated with. And once again, we don't know, you know, we 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 didn't succeed in in in. Uh, unveiling all of the mystery there's still a little bit of 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 mystery left hence the subtitle of our book the myths Mm -hmm. and mysteries of detroit's fortune records correct but we definitely uh delved into it as far as as far as we could as far as we we could uncover and you know there's it isn't so much just that fortune i mean fortune definitely defined in so many ways the uh sound and the spirit of those kinds of records um in detroit and it seems like it was always a thing in detroit these these risque songs you know and i think but but one thing we did we did basically uh we were able to sort of i I, you know i guess i'll say prove if you will is that is that if if you took fortune away from the or the equation uh things would be things would be very different i mean they they encourage their artists. They seem like they absolutely love the idea of these party records. And they encourage and cajole these artists into doing these things. Um, you know, that might have just been like a part of the artist's set. But Jack and Devorah Brown would focus, would say, let's, you know, Johnny Bucket, who also recorded gospel music, by the way, but right. like, like let's let's do some of these party records you're so good at them you know what I, mean? I mean you know i'm guessing that that's probably what went down um and but where it where it starts uh in in you know as far as we could trace it was with a guy named edward keely who produced records for three labels starting with universal in 1939 uh with the york brothers hamtramck mama um and he had a record store on the east side of detroit and called mellow music and he uh, had a couple other labels that he dabbled in. Hot Wax was one of them. Mellow was another. And, they, and he was really into this, 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 uh, this risque stuff, you know, during World War II, which, I mean, really, 
nobody was really supposed to be pressing records during World War II. Well, this guy was doing it, you know. Okay. <laughs> Leave it to Detroit, you know. <laughs> um, but because there was a shellac ban for, for the war effort. I don't quite know how this guy got away with it. But, wow. you know, he was a fascinating character that our friend Craig Mackey delved into in his book, uh, his Detroit Country Music book. Um, and we were able to fortunately glean some of that information from Craig and, and then do our own research. And it really seems like a, pa a, you know, a torch was passed at the very least to the Browns from Edward Keeley. They must've known the guy because Hamtramck mama and Highland park girl by the York brothers, uh, which had originally been released you know, on Universal in 1939 mm -hmm. was reissued by Fortune. They almost like they bought his masters. So Fortune takes over the kind of uh, risque market a little bit in Detroit. And their first big hit was uh, with a guy named Roy Hall who came up from the South. Tell us about Roy Hall. You know, Roy Hall is, is just got this thunderous boogie piano style and he's a totally lurid, <laughs> you know, guy, I mean, along with a lot of those in that, that, you know, sort of piano red, uh, barrel house style, you know, these guys were singing, you know, I mean, after hours, whorehouse songs, you know, that was their deal, you know, almost like something you'd heard, you know, in Storyville in New Orleans and, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jelly Roll Morton. I mean, that's where it all goes back to. Right. So, sure. um, so Roy Hall is, is, you know, brings his brings his band to fortune and and of course you know devore loved him and they they cut dirty boogie that thing became just you know they put it out and it went like wildfire on the jukeboxes uh and just you know just a fantastic risque party number that couldn't be played on the radio but certainly could be played in uh every ballroom in the city you know um that had a jukebox so um that 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 started it and i think that and, and you know fortune started on um on linwood mm -hmm. uh, before they were on third they didn't move to third avenue until 1956 okay. uh so when they were on linwood they had the same sort of setup record store in the front studio in the back and you know jack i mean we found newspaper clippings i mean they're in the book you know jack got in trouble for uh you know selling party records i mean oh, it was really? like a thing yeah it was a, the vice squad i mean they, they were illegal in, in certain ways uh and which to think about that now it sounds ridiculous yeah. but you look at the newspaper clipping and it's like man you know uh he's getting nailed for for selling you know adult themed records um and, and what's funny about it is the fact that they got in trouble for it didn't stop them from, uh, from not only selling the records by other people, but making the records on their own. And that's, that again is sort of how Detroit became, you know, I mean, everyone was doing these kind of records to a certain extent back then, but nobody was doing them like they were in Detroit. Yeah. There's so many aspects of the story that are just kind of amazing and which the standard histories of Detroit music don't cover. Um, one thing I really want to get into, and we don't have time to talk about it tonight, is the gospel recordings of Fortune, of which there were many, and um, many different groups in black styles and white hillbilly kind of styles. But um, here's a record that I always have enjoyed 
by the Reverend George Morton with the Jones sisters, who later, I guess, became disco hit makers. This is called This Is My Story. George Morton and the Jones Sisters with This Is My Story on the Fortune Records High Q imprint. We're talking to Michael Hurt, the co-author of Mind Over Matter, The Myths and Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records tonight. And in the second hour, we'll be hearing more gospel records like that one, along with all the other styles Fortune recorded. Uh, I know Mike and Billy Miller worked on this book for over 10 years, and I'm going to have to say, I assume it was more for love than money. Right. I mean, you know, the idea is obviously with anything you do it for the love first and the money second and if the money shows up great and we certainly hope it will but you know uh in this case if anything if anything deserves it (laughs) considering all the blood sweat and tears and everything in the journey uh that we put into it and the the immeasurable amount of time you know um but yeah i mean you got to do it for the love of it first and i think that's really the key Absolutely. And it, and it really shows in the work that you and Billy did and the coverage of the different styles of music from the gospel that we just heard to uh, rockabilly, which we barely touched on, to doo-wop, to um, Hungarian recordings, dabbling in instrumentals and garage rock a little tiny bit, and even soul music um, and funk later on. Fortune just covered so many styles and the way you guys patched it together, the love that you put into it is so evident and it just leaps off the page. And obviously we can't show here on the radio our listeners what this thing looks like, but you call it the brick and it is like a brick. It's like a heavy, I mean, I hate to call it a coffee table book because it's not just illustrations. It's a marriage of illustrations and text. And one thing that we really have to mention is that this music hasn't been legitimately reissued. There's no legal CDs uh, or easy to get CDs of even bootleg quality of this music for the most part. And it's the, the, the label owners are eccentric and there's a lot of story back behind that. But um, the only way to really hear this music is by YouTube. I'm really thankful that this book was able to come out during the age of YouTube. You know, even if the fortune catalog was completely available to everybody right. everywhere uh, at the, you know, by just walking into a record store or whatever. The fact is, is that there's so much other stuff we're covering in here that's related to it. Right. And intertwined and so many other records um, that, you know, it would, it would have actually served, served a disservice for us to have included a, you know, some people do the thing where they include the CD, you know, it's like, well, how would you even narrow it down? You know, but, but we're also, you know, we're talking about, like I say, so many other labels as well and how, how they all intertwine with the story and the fact that people can go, can read. And a lot of people are doing it this way because they say, well, I'm reading the book. Uh, I'll, get to, I'll get to a point and I'll go listen to, you know, Rufus Schaffner, you know, uh, 
on YouTube and, and I'll listen to his stuff on, you know, not only on Fortune, but then I'll listen to the, the, the stuff he did on his own label, American Artist, and then I can go listen to the Sunny Siders who he played bass for, whatever. It's like you get, you can actually go ahead and listen. You know, you can hear the, you know, first Jimmy Martin RCA single that Rufus wrote, you know, save it just, you know, by going to YouTube. It's on a major label. So normally it would be something that you could never get your hands on. Um, that's, that's, a good, that's a really interesting point because, um, I mean, this, you know, could serve almost like as a, a insane, like box set liner notes package where you just, yeah. if you had all, I mean, there's about 400 releases that Fortune put out. If you had all 400 releases on a massive CD box set and this book, that would be one thing. But as you just said, since it's not available, it's not in print, you can go to YouTube. And so, in the, in the in the context, I mean, again, the label shots. I'm just flipping through it here. There's like a single on Knowles. I mean, the gospel label. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, Brother Will Harrison, the Hurricane of the Motor City, put out those amazing, you know, March on to Montgomery records and stuff. Right. Which you know you can Alabama bus. Yeah. Alabama yeah. bus. And we, and we and had to. Yeah, he was a guy that again he was a peripheral part of the story. He didn't record at Fortune, yep. but. You know, it's like we had to mention that guy. We had to talk about yeah. those records. Those records are legendary. It's like civil rights call to arms, like I right. said before. Uh, it's the first mention of Martin Luther King, you know, on wax, mm -hmm. you know, in the 50s. I mean, this guy, and, and and again, it happened in Detroit. That's that's the hashtag, I guess, if right. you will. I mean, there's just so much that happened here and started here and so much history that has not been covered. That Well, we tried to cover as much of it as we could. Uh there's, there's always more. And the, I mean, just some of the sidelights about, what is it, the Greystone Ballroom where a dude like brings a, a, a tiger on stage and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was what the, the village. Hell? Well, it was the village. The village, the village. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it was a lion, but you're close, yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> well, you know what's funny about that story is as far as like, as far as it goes when you're dealing with these larger than life characters, and you're dealing with stuff that happened a long time ago and you're trying to picture these worlds. Right. I remember like talking to Nathaniel Mayer uh, at his house here in Detroit with my friend S.R. Boland. Um, and he said, you know, we were interviewing him and, I, and it's actually in the book. Uh, it was ended up being used. Uh, they had a real live lion caged, you know, that they brought out. And he's talking about they bringing this lion out on stage. And we later on, we were like, God, I mean, that almost sounds like crazy enough to be true. Like where would Nate <laughs> just make that up? But I mean, he's such a wild guy that, like, yeah. you know, it's almost like you don't, you don't think that you don't believe him, but you're not so sure. And, and, and this is so funny. I went through this with Billy so many times. Like we thought, well, that's gotta be an exaggeration. You know, not necessarily that story, but, but other ones. And then every single time, <laughs> somehow it would come out of the woodwork from a totally different direction that it was true. Now, in the case of the lion, the reason that uh, the flamethrowers, which I mentioned earlier, a project, yeah, yeah, yeah. double 45 project I did for Norton, that whole thing came to fruition through my friend, George Katsakis, the saxophone player from the Royal Tones who played in my band, the Party Stompers with me, mm -hmm. said, just happened to mention that his best friend had used to have a band called the Flamethrowers. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know? Um, yeah. give me his phone number, whatever, mm -hmm. Dr. Bruce Stratton, who, who George, you know, and, and who's, who's, who's claim to fame was that he was, he was like one of the guys who really broke 
he broke Mickey Gailey in a huge way, and he broke a lot of other really, really successful country artists out of huge, out of a uh, out of Texas in the '80s. Um, so he had a lot to do with like you know new country or whatever, if you will. He was a disc jockey, but anyway, <laughs> I called the guy up trying to get the flamethrower story. Well, he starts telling me the story, and he starts talking about how he had managed the village when wow. it first opened. The first, he was the first manager of the village. And he said, we had this real live African lion. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Nate was totally, you know, like, Nate didn't know the whole story. Yeah. But this guy filled in the gaps. Bruce said, uh, Dr. Bruce said that, well, yeah, the, the, the Glantz brothers, who later opened the Grandy, you know, took the Grandy Ballroom over and, you know, uh, you know, sort of started the, basically started along with Russ Gibb, the, oh. you know, all that, uh, that whole scene. Um, these guys, and they were involved in Walt Lake Casino and all these other, you know, places, you know, clubs around around town. Then, uh, you know, they named the place after the song "The Lion Sleeps Tonight." Oh. In the village, the lion sleeps tonight. So, because it was it was a huge hit at the time, and so they got this African lion. That was a part of the deal. And, and Doctor Bruce said, "Yeah, the lion lived in our house. We, he lived in our basement." You know, uh, the story in the book, but it's just—I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's just like it's so funny, and you can't believe that this stuff even happened. Yeah, that's one of so many stories in the book that is just mind blowing. And it, one of the things that. You know, this book really does is it corrects some some of the lost history that, that people have only focused on Motown and the big names, but this stuff's just as important. We would just like some equal time. We want these yeah. stories to be equally uh, told alongside the stories of techno music, the stories of Motown music, the stories, yeah. you know, the stories that get told over and over about the MC5 and the Stooges. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. love those guys, man, you know? It's nothing against them. It's just that Andre Williams and Nathaniel Mayer and you know Rufus Schaffner and Curly Dan and Wilma Ann—they deserve to be talked about too because they are such a part of an intrinsic and inextricable part of the heart and soul of just the true essence of Detroit. Um, and for a lot of people around the world, that is what they think of this milieu that we cover in this book. This sort of mixed milieu mm -hmm. uh, that we try to bring um, to the surface is what a lot of people around the world think of when they identify with Detroit. That is Detroit to them, you know. Right. Uh, right. Gina Washington, Nathaniel, I mean, that mm -hmm. is the sound of Detroit, you know. And then you you, you walk around here and half the people, you know, most people don't have no idea who they are. But we were really hoping to, to you know, bring these bring these people and their music and their stories mm -hmm. into the into the constant conversation yes. um, of the city and and uh, you know that's one of the reasons, I mean, obviously we tried to write, we, we, we wrote the book with the energy. We tried to write it with the energy that you, of the records. And we, you know, so much of the time with these kind of history books, mm -hmm. um, they can be so academic that it's almost like there's just dust settling on the stories, you know, on the shelf and on the page, you know, yeah. it's almost like they're, they're actually putting the stories on a shelf. Well, mm -hmm. our goal was to like bring the stories to life. I mean, we're talking about, mm -hmm. These are people's lives. And, and mm -hmm. if you look at someone like Nathaniel or someone like Eddie Kirkland, um, you know, it's like their whole life informs everything yeah. they did in that studio. Yeah. And uh, 
and other things they did inform the records. And so we try to talk about all of it as much as we can, but I mean, it's just like, yeah, these are people's lives we're dealing with. And to us, and I'm sure you can relate to this, these people are still with us. They're still alive. You know, we put their records on and that's, that's commuting with their soul at that moment mm-hmm. that record was recorded. Uh, my friend, Tim Caldwell, always who contributed a lot to the book, always talks about this. He says, you know, that's, you put that needle in that groove and you're commuting with someone's soul. You're, mm-hmm. you're actually going back in time. And so that's a big part of uh, us trying to bring these stories to life is that these people to us are so eternal and their stories are so eternal that we want them to live, you know? And that was a big reason to do the book. Well, you did an amazing, you and Billy did an amazing job. And it's, you know, again, we talked, started off talking a little bit about Billy. I mean, it must've just been heartbreaking to him not to be, have been able to see this through to the end because this was such a part of his life. Oh my God, absolutely. It really was and, and still is. And I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he worked until literally I was, I was with him, you know, a week before he passed away uh, mm-hmm. for a long, you know, jag of, of uh, immersion, you know, working on the book. And I mean, he was really like working on it up until the very absolute end. I mean, and, and, uh, and you know, he was really struggling and having a rough time uh, with, with multiple, you know, multiple issues, you know, um, but, uh, you know, his mind was just like throughout the whole thing, he was so focused and so clear on how we had to do this, uh, you know, what needed to be said, where, what needed to go. I mean, you know, it was really fantastic. He was such an amazing person to work with. And yeah, the fact that he's not here to see the finished product is Mm -hmm. truly heartbreaking. I mean, I, I did have to work for, you know, four more years on it after, after he was gone. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people say, well, how did you do that? You know, and, and if there was still so much to do, well, there, it wasn't, it wasn't that, that there, there was a lot to do, but we had talked about it all so much that anything that hadn't been written down already, I knew exactly what to write and how he would want it written. And I'm sure he would have been able to do the same thing for me, you mm-hmm. know, if the shoe had been on the other foot, because we had just talked about every element of the book so much that it was living in our minds, you know, oh. forefront. And, uh, you know, it took a while to figure out certain things and how certain things should go, but it all did come together. And, and I do feel that uh, when he wasn't here, in a sense, I did feel like he was with me, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, a cliche of a thing to say in a sense, but, it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really was, mm-hmm his spirit is there on every page of that book. And, and this was such an, I mean, the guy did so much in his life, so many incredible projects with, you know, kicks magazine, Norton records, uh, you know, and a bones. Yeah. Bands, the Zanties and the a bones, you know, all just, just all kinds of stuff. But um, I know that this book was truly his, like, I mean, the fact that this was his last word to the world yeah. I think he would have wanted it that way because it was truly one of his dreams to, you know, get the story of Fortune Records out there into the world. I mean, he just was so fascinated and obsessed with this label. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the story of Detroit, you know, he truly loved the, you know, every shred of information that I came up with that was connected with it, you know, that I, that, that I wouldn't have been able to come with if I hadn't you know, been blown up here by the hurricane, <laughs> you know, living here really helped. I don't think, 
I mean, I'm sure we could have done the book if right. either of us had lived here, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like being a Detroiter or becoming a Detroiter mm -hmm. really helped the, you know, with so much background, just understanding the strange city. Well, it sounds like you guys did every bit of homework you could possibly do. Listen, we want to thank Michael Hurt uh, tremendously for joining us here tonight on Radio Ramalama Fa Fa Fa. And stay tuned because we're going to give you another hour of Fortune Music unedited. We had to cut some of these clips just a little bit. But we'll go out now with Mind Over Matter, the theme song that uh, inspired the title of the book and one of Fortune's biggest hits by Nolan Strong. Mm -hmm. 